you're able, please remain standing for a reading of God's word. This is 1 Samuel chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. The Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you will have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. One of the most influential books of the 20th century was written in 1949 by a man named Joseph Campbell. Campbell was a comparative mythologist. And he wrote a book called The Hero with a thousand faces. It's been a long time since I read the book. I read it back in college, but it's a book that I think every Christian should read. It's a book about heroes and how every great hero story is essentially the same story. As a comparative mythologist, Campbell spent time studying myths, the great hero stories across all of human history and across cultures. And what he found is that essentially every single great hero story has the same structure, the same pattern. It follows the same plot line. This is what he said. He said, a hero ventures forth from a world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons 
on his fellow man. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Paul, how could that be the most influential book in the 20th century? I've never even heard of it. Certainly I've never read it before. Well, a young filmmaker named George Lucas read it. And he read it while I was writing a little screenplay called Star Wars. And later he would come to admit, even give credit, that Campbell's work influenced not only the characters, but the basic plot, the basic plot of Star Wars. Since then, the idea that's put forth in The Hero of a Thousand Faces, that every great story has a similar plot structure when it comes to heroism, has found its way into countless movies and books and works of literature. Anything from 2001, A Space Odyssey, to Aladdin, to Beauty and the Beast, to the television series Lost. Why does this matter? You see, every great hero's story reveals something about us and who we are as human beings across cultures and across history. Because deep down in us, the reason why we worship heroes, why we look up to superheroes and comic book characters and athletes, the reason why we look up to our heroes is because deep down, every single one of us needs rescuing. It doesn't matter where you come from or who you are. To be human, this side of the fall is to be broken. It's to be in desperate need of salvation. And there's something now that is hardwired in us that is looking for a hero. This is true of us, it was true of the people of Israel. 1 Samuel 11 tells the story of Saul. It's a great hero story. A story of a people who find themselves surrounded by an enemy that they cannot defeat and so they cry out for rescue. And Saul becomes the great heroic king that everybody wanted him to be. But the truth is this morning, what we're going to find is that underneath this story is a greater story. Underneath every great hero story is a greater story. It's a story of rescue, of a savior king that has come for his people. We're gonna see this in three ways. The first is this, every one of us has an enemy. I want you to look at verse one of chapter 11. We're told that Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And that all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. Now, you need to know a little bit of background to understand what's going on here. Nahash was a king, the king of the Ammonites. His name literally means serpent and it's a fitting name. He was vicious and he was ruthless and he had set his sights on Israel and he had warred against them. Not too long ago, one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of our age was made just outside of the Dead Sea, in the caves in a place called Qumran. In these caves, we found countless ancient Hebrew manuscripts that have shed light on the Bible, especially the Old Testament. One of those manuscripts 
tells us about King Nahash. I want you to listen what kind of king, what kind of enemy he was. Now Nahash, it says, the king of the Ammonites had been oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites grievously, gouging out the right eye of each of them and allowing Israel no deliverer. No men of the Israelites who are across the Jordan remained whose right eye, Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. It is a vicious picture. Today, this would be considered a war crime. What Nahash was doing is he was terrorizing the people of Israel, not just going to war against them. And as he captured them, when they surrendered, he would gouge out their right eyes. Why? Why such brutality? Well, it was as much as it was brutal, it was also strategic. You see, you use your right eye, if you're right-handed, to aim. And if you don't have your eye to aim, then you're going to be useless in battle if there ever be a revolt against the king, Nahash, who's just conquered you. And so here is Nahash. He is pursued the people of Israel. And next in this manuscript, we're told that there are just 7,000 in this territory left. And they have made their way and they've holed themselves up in a city called Jabesh. It's the city we're reading about here in 1 Samuel 11. I want you to put yourself in their shoes. You have been trying to escape, fleeing from an evil enemy an evil king who is brutal. Somehow, not only have you managed to keep both of your eyes, but you've managed to escape him. And now you've made your way to the last stronghold, a little city called Jabesh. And now you've gotten word that King Nahash and his armies have now surrounded this city too. And they have laid it under siege. I wonder, do you have any enemies like that? Is there anyone or anything in your life that you feel oppressed by? Is there anything now that is causing you to be afraid? Afraid that this thing or this person is coming after you, seeking not only to destroy you, but to maim you, to disgrace you, coming after you and your way of life. In our current culture today that is so divisive and so angry, it's easy for us to identify and point out the enemies outside of us. We have political enemies, Republicans versus Democrats. We have cultural enemies, conservatives versus liberals. We have marketplace enemies, the interest of our own business over and against the interest of others ideological enemies, our own view of the world versus the way that other people might see it. And yes, we have personal enemies. Brother against brother, sister against sister, friend against friend, even husband against wife. You see, I think it is far too easy for us to point out the enemies outside of us that we completely miss, that our greatest enemy lies within. 
It has laid our hearts and our very souls under siege, and it is warring against us from the inside out. I want you to listen to how the Apostle Paul describes this enemy. It's in Romans chapter 7. Paul writes, so I find it to be a law that when I do right and I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Friends, do you recognize that you are at war? For some of us, we don't even see that, let alone our enemy. We have been lulled into a spiritual slumber by apathy. What we first have to recognize is that you are at war. And then you have to understand what you're up against. Paul says that we are not at war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against these forces of evil. The people of Israel, they had an evil king, a serpent king named Nahash. And we have an adversary, the serpent, the devil, who is roaring around like a lion seeking to devour us. And what you need to know is this enemy, the devil, is not our only enemy, but he has conspired with another enemy that has already has us surrounded. And that enemy is sin. The idea that we don't need God and his authority. This thought that is planted deep in our hearts and deep in our minds that we should make ourselves our own king and establish our own kingdoms. This sin that resides deep within us, I don't know what it looks like for you. But here's the question you must ask. What sin do you have this morning that has you surrounded? What sin has laid your soul under siege? Siege warfare was pretty common back in the ancient Near East. What they would do is they would come up around a city. The word siege is just Latin for the word sit because that's exactly what they would do. They would just camp themselves surrounding a city and they would wait them out. It was a slow way to do battle and it was a slow way to die because this is what they would do. They would just cut off every single resource from food to water to that particular city to the point where the people on the inside of the walls would just starve to death or die of thirst. Brothers and sisters, this is what our sin does to us. It chokes us out. It starves us from the very life that the gospel offers to us. It lays us under siege and it holds us under its sway. Do you recognize that you have an enemy and that this enemy is too much for you to bear. The second thing that I think we see in the story of Saul is we see that we must be rescued. Every one of us, deep down, we need to be rescued. I want you to look at verse three. It says, the elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. Okay, so what are they doing? They're negotiating with this evil king. 
First, they say, can we just surrender? And then Nahash comes back and says, yeah, you can surrender, but when you surrender, I'm gonna gouge out your right eye. And so they come back and they say, okay, give us seven days. Let us call out for mercy. Let us cry out for a savior. Let us send out word that we need someone to come to our rescue. If nobody comes, then we'll surrender to you and you can do whatever you want with us. So the cry goes out. They send out this cry. They are begging for someone to rescue them. You see, it is only when we are most desperate that we are willing to cry out for rescue. I think it's a hard thing for us to admit that we need help. It's a hard thing for us to admit that we need somebody else to rescue us. Just over a year ago, during the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey, the New Yorker ran a story about a man named David. He was an elderly man, he was diabetic, and he refused to be rescued. He had holed himself up in his house. His entire neighborhood was now flooded and the floodwaters were rising. And so the story tells of this man whose family is pleading with him, begging with him that, that he would allow the medical professionals, the paramedics to come and to give him aid, and yet he refuses. For four days, his son Brian would come to his house, would wade through neck deep water to try to convince his dad to allow someone to help him. And finally, at the end of the story, Brian, his son, has now exhausted himself badly need and medical attention himself. And finally, his father, David, relents. Reluctantly, he comes out of his house and he allows himself to be rescued. And as his family comes alongside him, they confront him on his stubbornness and his poor health. This is what he said. I don't have any control over anything. You see, what is so ironic about this is that control is exactly what David had. Even though the floodwaters were rising, even though he was on the verge of insulin shock, to give up control to another human being to come to his aid was the last thing that he wanted to do. You see, that is why we have such a hard time being rescued it is so hard for us to entrust ourselves into the care of another, to give up control. And so there's some part of us that even when things seem hopeless, we're holding on, we think, I can still do this. <laughs> I still got this. I can work my way out. Do you see that the floodwaters are rising? That you have an enemy that you cannot overcome? Will you cry out, for rescue. The people of Israel, they recognized that there was nothing more they could do. They cried out, they sent word all across the country and that word reached the hometown of Saul. What happens next is an amazing hero story. It's like something that you would see in the movies today. It's the original hero story in so many ways. Here is Saul, he's the newly anointed king of Israel He's minding his own business and he's just plowing his field with his oxen. 
all of a sudden he hears the cry, the cry for help. The bat signal has gone up right into the sky. He hears the cry of his people and he yells out to them. He says, why are you crying? And he hears that the people of Jabesh are under siege. And so he leaves his oxen behind. He rallies the people of Israel. He raises up an army of 330,000 men. And they march over to Jabesh to confront the enemy and to defeat them on the people of Jabesh's behalf. It's a great hero story. Saul was becoming the hero that they wanted him to be. They were crying out for rescue and God gave them just that. He sent them a rescuer. Mark Twain talks about our need for rescue and our need for a hero this way in his autobiography. I want you to listen to what he says. He says, unconsciously, we all have a standard by which we measure other men. And if we examine closely, what we find is the standard is a very simple one. It's this, we admire them. We envy them for great qualities we ourselves lack. Our heroes are men who do things which we recognize with regret and sometimes with secret shame that we cannot do. What is he saying? Deep down, every one of us, if we're going to be honest, we have to reckon with the fact that we cannot get ourselves out of our own mess. And we need a hero because we need to be rescued. So the third and final thing that I want to look at this morning is that God has given us a savior king. I want you to look at verse 11. The next day, we're told that Saul put the army, the people into three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. So Saul, being a wise leader, splits up his large army into threes. And then he attacks when they would least expect it in the morning watch. The morning watch lasted from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. What you need to know is that the only other place in the Old Testament where the morning watch is mentioned is in the book of Exodus. I think that's intentional. You see, in the Exodus during the morning watch, God rescued his people from slavery through a man named Moses. And now, during the morning watch, through a man named Saul, God is rescuing his people from the evil king Nahash and all the Ammonites. This is a rescue mission. God has come for them through this king, King Saul. Saul returns victoriously. He returns as the hero that everybody wanted him to be. In verse 12, this is what it says. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Okay, what are they doing? If you remember last week, in the very end of chapter 10, after Saul's kingship has been announced, we learn that there was division. Not everybody saw Saul as their king. There were many who questioned his authority, questioned his leadership. They asked, can this man save us? And so here, the people of Israel have gathered together and they say, hey, go find those people. Because clearly, 
Saul is the one that we need. If there was any doubt, any question about his ability to lead us, to be the hero that we want him to be, that has been answered in this victory. We're told later that Samuel then gathers all of Israel. They come together and they finally crown Saul king once and for all. No more division, no more doubt. Saul seems like the hero. But I want you to remember the question, the question that was posed at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 10. The question that they asked and doubt that Saul could ever be the king that they wanted him to be. I want you to listen. 1 Samuel 10, verse 27. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? They may have been worthless fellows, but it's not a worthless question. How can this man save us? The answer is not given in Saul's victory. The answer is not even given in Saul's becoming uh, crowned as king. The answer is given by Saul himself in verse 13. I want you to look with me. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. How can this man save us? The honest answer is he can't. Saul cannot save them and no king, humanly speaking, ever will. Saul cannot save them, but the Lord can. And Saul tells us that the Lord has brought salvation to Israel. This is what I want you to see this morning. The message of 1 Samuel is this. God has given us a savior king, but that savior king is not Saul. It is God himself. You see, the hero of 1 Samuel chapter 11 is not Saul. The hero is God. God is the hero working in and through Saul. God is the hero throughout all of 1 and 2 Samuel. God is the hero behind the scenes working in every single story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. God is the hero behind every good hero story. Behind every hero, there is the shadow of the hero, the Savior King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The reason why every hero's story is the same is because it is longing and crying out for a rescue that can only come through Jesus. How can this man save us? He came in the form of a servant, born in a manger. This man, this King Jesus, born in humility, then lived a life that you and I could never live. And though he was tempted just like you and me, he never sinned. And then this King, for you and for me, rode in victoriously into Jerusalem as people waved palm branches and cried out, Hosanna, save us, King of Israel. And then just a week later, this King laid down his crown at the cross. And he took the enemy 
that now has you and I surrounded, our sin and our shame, and he bore it on the cross and he died for you and for me. But the story does not end there. On the third day, our king, our hero, Jesus Christ, rose again in victory for you and for me. And one day, our Savior King will return. Until that day comes, will you cry out for rescue? Will you acknowledge the enemy that has you surrounded that you cannot defeat on your own? And will you look to the only hero that has the power to free you from sin and death? His name is Jesus Christ. He is our hero and he is our savior king. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you give us a greater glimpse of our King Jesus Christ? Would you help us to see that he is the hero that we desperately need? Help us to see that we are in badly need of rescue this morning, every single one of us. And would you, Father, this morning, would you break open our hearts? If there is anyone here this morning who has never cried out for rescue, would you help them see their need and would you meet them by sending your son to their very souls and give them the gift of faith by your Holy Spirit that they might have life. Be with us now. Give us that resurrection life as we sing and as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.